Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. So John 10, passage we all know well. My mom actually called me with a word out of John 10 a couple of, I don't know, a week ago or something. And um, it was... It was one of those things like, hey, we always get hung up here and we don't go here. And I'm like, whoa, that's huge. That's true. So, of course, that gets me into John 10. And then the Lord's got something else for me. And that, that's like how the word works. You know, it's alive and it's just doing different things in each of us. And my prayer is as we get into it this morning that even if you were here first service, that you get something different out of his second service. Um, Lord, we just uh, invite you to breathe this into us. Lord, as you breathe scripture, as it's divine and inspired and infallible and inerrant and good for teaching, Lord, we pray that, that these words would not be heard from a sermon or a preacher, but they would uh, just be breathed off your lips into our hearts, Lord. Change us, transform us, shape us in Jesus' name. Amen. Two verses this morning. That's all, that's all we're going to get to. Two verses. Chapter 10, verse 1, red letters. Jesus is talking. Yes, his disciples are there. They were kind of always around. But he's also speaking in a room full of Pharisees. Uh, and these Pharisees are doing what they were always doing. They were always trying to get him uh, to say something incriminating, self-incriminating. And so they would ask leading questions. And Jesus uh, would answer them with, you know, leading questions and they just would go back and forth until Jesus would, you know, steal away into the crowd or they would finally get frustrated and leave because they weren't getting what they wanted. This is one of those unique places where Jesus actually gave them exactly what they wanted and he affirms his deity. The the back half, the back 40 of chapter 9 coming right in hot on chapter 10. They're asking him this and that, who are you, this and that, and he actually says, I'll just read it to you. He he asked him, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Why does he want to believe in him? Because the Son of Man was a fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies that these Pharisees were very familiar with. And Jesus said, you have both seen him, and he's the one talking with you now. That's his like third person like way of saying, I'm the guy. Like, Hey, there's a Messiah in the room, and it's this guy. It's kind of Jesus' way of saying it. Confirms, affirms, says, yes, sure. If, is that what you want to hear? Yes, I'm the guy. For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Now, the Pharisees loved it when he talked like this because they can then go take this and say, hey, he's saying that he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies, and I mean, clearly he's not, and so we should kill him. Now, how do you get to that from there? I don't know, but that's just, they wanted to do it. And so Jesus comes out of this in that context on the heels of this confession of, yes, I am the Son of Man, the Son of God, the one that everybody's been waiting for. He comes out, and in chapter 10, says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. 
Okay. I love this. I love Jesus is like, yes, I'm God, but now let me tell you about how I'm a shepherd. Yeah. Amen. You know, we, we want him, like when he comes out, like, I'm coming. He, we want him to be like, I'm God, and here's my white horse, and here's my white robe, and here's the scepter in my hand. We want him to come out like that, but he's like, no, I'm a shepherd. And I think this is so beautiful. This is wonderful because, again, it boggles the minds of the Pharisees who have been waiting for him to admit this so that he can then do what they would all do if they were the Messiah and, you know, puff up with arrogance and pride and say, and actually, I'm all these things. But instead, he says, I'm a shepherd. We're going to get to it in just a second. But before he says anything, the very first point that he addresses, and this is huge, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Now, it must be important for the Lord. It must be excruciatingly important if the Lord is going to start his discourse on his shepherdship by pointing out that anyone who comes into the fold by any other way is a thief and a robber. And it begs the question of us this morning, saints, 2,000 years later, how did it get in? If you're writing things down, write it down, underline it. How did it get in? Somehow, that's the most important thing. That's the thing he starts with. If there's something in your life and you're wondering whether it's good, whether it's God, or whether it's the enemy, the number one question to ask how did it get in? Well, that's interesting. Shouldn't I just be looking at the fruit? Aren't we supposed to be like, you know, looking at the fruit? Well, here's the deal. Satan comes as an angel of light. And he can produce some pretty fruity looking stuff in our lives. You know what I'm saying? And so if we're only judging, well, look, look at, I mean, I'm rolling in the money now. So, I mean, that's got to be a God thing, right? Nope. You got to take a couple of steps back. How did it get in? If you're asking the question, is this God? Is this the will of God? Should I put a fleece out? Well, before you do that, how did it get in? If it came through the door, then it came with the Lord. If it came over the wall, then you're about to fall. Don't write that down. That's dumb. So Jesus draws attention first and foremost to the means of access. Why? Because saints, so often we'll be busy dealing with the enemy when what we should be addressing is how the heck he got in to begin with. Nehemiah comes back to do what? Build the wall. Nehemiah comes back to build the wall. What's so one of the first things he does? He rides around. Under cloak of darkness, in the middle of the night, he goes around and inspects the wall. And the first thing he does is when he determines where there are weaknesses and vulnerabilities, where are there cracks, where are there missing blocks, where does it look like this gate's falling off the hinges or whatever else, it says he stations families 
at the low places in the wall to do two things. Number one, to refortify that wall, but number two, to guard that vulnerability while it's still exposed. Now, this is important for us today because we, we are way less concerned about the hole in the fence and way more concerned about the bloodbath that became of our chickens. Okay, now I'm just talking about myself. All right, this is just personal stuff. There's a, a roving gang of rabid raccoons in South Rehoboth. They're the Southside gang. We actually just sold our house because of it. We're moving north of 44. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. But what, what we have this issue is like we come out, we like, we see everything dead, all the chaos, all the destruction. Oh my God, it's carnage everywhere. And we're like burying chickens and having funeral services and like making soup and you know what you do with dead chickens. And, and it's like, you know, what should be registering somewhere in the back of my mind is, well, I should probably find out how the thing got in. How did it get in? You remember God's first question after sin enters the world, the fall of man. Knock on the door. Adam says, hang on a second. Let me put something on. And he comes out with his fig leaf and his, you know, whatever, vine underwear. And he comes out and he says, Lord, uh, you know, you called on me, but we were hiding because we were naked. What does God ask? Who told you you were naked? In other words, how did it get in? How did it get in? That's what we need to deal with. I'm not worried about your nakedness. I'm not, yeah, a sacrifice is going to have to be made. Blood's going to have to be shed. I'm going to have to make your covering, yes. But what we really need to deal with right now is how did it get in? Where did you give it access? Oh, turns out there was a conversation between Eve and the enemy, and the serpent lied and convinced her to, to be disobedient. Okay, now we've got something we need to talk about. Now, now we've got something to work with. Where are we going from here? Because if we're not addressing that and we're just trying to cover sin without actually addressing it, we will never get out of it. We live in a world that wants to avoid at all costs having to address sin. Keep it in the dark, whatever you do. Keep it under wraps until you get it right. Oh, my God. I've had awesome men of God tell me not to be so open about my struggles. I can't live that life. That's where the enemy gets power from. That's fuel for his fire. How did it get in? Gets in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? Information. Influence. Comes through our brokenness. You remember... Joe Cocker covered a Ray Charles song. She came in through the bathroom window. Remember that song? No, nobody. Derek recorded that in the early 60s. How did it get in? It's funny. We talk about brokenness a lot here. We talk about woundedness, brokenness. But what's interesting about brokenness is what brokenness really is, is a broken place in the wall. It's a broken place in the, the very system that is part of preventing the enemy to come in. So brokenness creates a vulnerability. It creates access. It's a chink in an armor plate through which the enemy can fire darts, through which he can hurl lies, 
through which he can, can release uh, uh, anger or whatever else into and through. That's brokenness. That's why it's so important that the Lord's healing our brokenness. But first, we have to be aware of our brokenness, right? And I just, I, I, I can't say it enough. I mean, we're broken in a million, we can, be, we can be broken in a million ways. But as I was praying through this, there's just some things, and I'm going to just kind of like rapid fire throw some things out because I know that we need applications sometimes. And so one thing I'll point out is um, soul ties. As I was in this, I was thinking like, God, how, how are we being affected, you know, How's the enemy getting in? And I felt like I, he just whispered that this idea, soul ties. Okay. Well, we know what soul ties are. Are there any toxic relationship? A toxic relationship is, you know, one where there's an unhealthy control that takes place. There's an unhealthy influence and we're bound. John has a really easy definition. Like if there's someone in your life that you cannot say no to, it's a soul tie. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? If there's somebody in your life, why? In his best line, because the creator of the universe gives you a choice. And yet there's someone in your life who doesn't. That's a problem. Some of y'all are looking at your mom and your dad right now. And I'm not, that's not where we're going. Okay. Don't go there. Honor. Honor, Shatabasanda. <laughs> honor your father and your mother. Even you, 60-year-old in the room, honor your father and your mother. But let me, just, uh, let me just say, soul ties are this thing that we will keep opening the door for. You may not even have a hole in your wall anywhere. But a soul tie is something that will seductively prey upon your weakness, your wanderings, your Achilles heel. It will prey upon whatever it is, whatever it strokes your ego to get you to open the gate so they can push the horse inside. And out from this seeming gift comes your defeat, your destruction. So, yes, soul ties. Soul ties. How, how about um, just coming down to the altar every week after week after week? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm this guy. You know, and we come down and we beg and we ask the Lord, hey, God, take this from me. Heal me of this. Take this from me. Heal me of Now, here's what happens, because a lot of times we get frustrated. Has anybody ever been frustrated that the Lord wouldn't just answer that prayer? He is always faithful to meet us wherever we build an altar, wherever we get on it, wherever we humble ourselves in his sight. He's always faithful to meet us there. But here's the deal. What this dialogue looks like is God saying this, hey, let's go for a walk around the wall. I want to point some places out to you. We just keep coming back. God, fix it. I'm in another terrible relationship. I'm in another broken place. I'm in another. The enemy abounds. How long will my enemies assail? And we start quoting scripture like it's going to change. And then, although that message from Colin Tuesday night was so good. Y'all need to go back on Tuesday. Oh, no. That wasn't recorded, was it? Yeah, never mind. It's not there. Had to be here. So, praying the Bible. Oh, it was recorded. Okay, it was. Yeah, Tuesday night. Go get it. But the deal is this, what the Lord wants is to walk with you, to work with you, to point out to you places and then put the fire in your hands, the material in your hands to be strengthened, to be edified, to be refortified. And so when we keep going back, when we keep leaving that thing open and that thing weak, yes, we can keep coming back to the altar every Sunday from now until kingdom come. 
The problem is we're not living the life that we were called to live. We're not walking in the power and the peace and the strength and the fullness that we were called to live. Broken places, soul ties. Some of us, we, we've just, we've had trauma or we've had abuse in our lives and it becomes the filter through which we see not just bad things, but good things, God things. For some of us, our, our daddy issues are getting in the way of what God issues in our life. And, and we, we completely miss the goodness of who our God is because of the terribleness of who our earthly father was. And um, I, I mean, that word, Judd, is so perfect because that, that way in which you were raised, it poses the threat. It's, it, it's the risk. It's the, it's the toxin that will keep you from ever seeing who you are in God. And, and it's when we can break free of that that we can start firing on all cylinders again, that we can actually start to operate in health. So I felt as I was praying through this, just a couple things, um, and I want to just go through these quickly, a couple of places where the enemy gets in. Because let's face it, as sheep, like you don't have eyes in the back of your head. You turn around and there's something in your life and you're like, how did that get there? You don't even know if it came through the door or if it came through uh, over the wall. But as Jesus goes on to explain, when the thing starts talking, you know whether it's a shepherd or whether you should run. And he says, when the thief tries to gather sheep, they scatter. Well, there's nothing more dangerous for sheep than to scatter. Okay. The only safety sheep have are from their shepherd and in their numbers. And when they start to separate and scatter from the flock, well, that's when the enemy starts to pick them off one at a time. That's why it's so important that we don't withdraw. Okay? See how it all comes together? Y'all thought I was just on some segue, but it's all one message. Pastor Kurt taught me that. First thing I want to address is uh, the occult and how sneaky it is. Some of us, we, we hear, you know, oh, the occult, and we're like, no, you know? I almost got that pentagram tattoo in college, and I didn't, you know, in my uh, emo days. Anybody have any emo? Yeah, okay. Black fingernail polish and Hot Topic. I see that hand, Jen. Well, I didn't get the pentagram tattoo, so I'm all set. No, no, no. See, it's like, again, he comes as an angel of light. Okay, so, so oftentimes the way the occult will work its way in, even to the American church, is we start to, um, we start to practice mythical and mystical and spiritual things that are outside the parameters of what the Lord has ordained for us. Now you can say, well, you know what? I feel a lot better after I go see my medium, or I feel a lot better after I get off the phone with sister Cleo, or I feel a lot better after I, you know, go have my palm read or, or whatever Reiki done or whatever it is. Listen, scripture is super clear on this. Do not consult with mediums. Do not fool around with witchcraft. That's Zach's translation. It doesn't say it like that. It does say do not consult with mediums. Why? Because even when you're trying to accomplish a good thing and you're going about it in an unholy way, you will create an access point for havoc. You will open up the wall and it'll be a portal to hell. And then we wonder, why is everything going wrong in my life? Why are my chairs turning upside down and my daughter's, you know, sitting in front of the TV? Anyway, now it's Poltergeist. It was a Christian movie in the 80s that came out. 
Carol Ann, Carol Ann. Why is Zelda Rubenstein wandering around my house? This house is Kalia. I never saw that movie, but I just, just kidding. The occult influence, it, it comes in in what looks like innocence. So you might be like, well, I read the horoscopes, but just because they're fun. <laughs> I don't really believe them. I just have to read them every week. <laughs> I just have to know what's happening for my, you know, when the stars align. It's, it's nuts because the playfulness and the innocence of it, I mean, they're, they're coming out with this stuff for kids. That's how it's being marketed now. I mean, Ouija boards are in toy stores, okay, as like a board game. If you have one, throw it in the trash. Set it on fire. You might be surprised. It might not burn. The deal is, the deal is, you got to get rid of this crap because it's all an opportunity for the enemy to come in. Saul goes and seeks out the witch of Endor, and, and for what purpose? But to call up the spirit of Samuel so that he can get some godly answers. And somehow he thinks that by disobeying the Lord's law about witchcraft, he's going to achieve a better outcome. And listen, I want you to know that I get it. When, we're, when we've gone through tragedies, when we've gone through losses, when we've gone through traumas, sometimes, you know, sometimes we, would, we make decisions that we wouldn't normally make. And we, we might find ourselves, you know, trying to contact a loved one or something like that. Or, you know, we find ourselves in a crystal cave or something trying to get some good energy somewhere. I'm telling you, this message may be God's grace on you right now. And maybe you haven't, you know, like had your whole life fall apart because of it. And you're like, well, I'm going to wait. I'm going to take my chances and see. Don't. Don't. Stop playing with it. It's fire and it will burn you. It's the enemy and it's an access point. And it's in this very passage that Jesus does not mince words. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Okay? All right. So the occult, you know, we, um, there was a, there was a move a number of years ago and it was on like, um, yoga and it was like in the church among Christians, there was all this controversy. Can we do yoga? What about holy yoga? What if we have Christian music playing in the background while we invite demons into our lives? Is that fine? And, uh, and you know, it's like, I'm, I'm not trying to just be hard on it because this isn't about condemnation. I'm trying to let you know that if you go back to the people who started yoga thousands of years, the whole idea comes from Middle Eastern religion, and it is literally the poses, everything about it is designed to invite entities into your life, into your body, okay? And people who have been instructors in this, the Holy Spirit's convicted, and they've like come full circle and are saying, no, like that was toxic, that's not good for me, and I'm not living that way. And And... We've had some incredible testimonies in this church of people who the Lord started to convict them and they start to break free of this. And then they realize the bondage and the oppression that it was causing in their lives. So I'm not telling you this like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm telling you, stop playing with fire. Okay. How did it get in? How did it get in? Okay. Bad teaching. That's the next one, bad teaching, false teachers. We're told in scripture that in the last days there would be false prophets and their false teaching would abound. And this is kind of a hard one because unlike the occult, 
false teaching exists. It's rampant in the church, right? So the occult, like we're usually, we're, you know, you get a bunch of traditional conservative Christians in a room together, and they're going to be like, yeah, we probably shouldn't listen to Black Sabbath backwards, you know, or whatever. They're probably not thinking like, let's sacrifice pigeons and light candles. But we fall under bad teaching easily, so easily, because just like the occult preys on our tragedies and our frailties, well, bad teaching preys upon our flesh, okay? How does it work? All right, well, let's talk about it for just a second. Uh, Bad teaching in and of itself may not be bad as part of a whole, but part of what's bad about bad teaching and false teaching is that it's a piece of the full council, and it's presented as the whole council. Okay? That by itself is bad. That's like me saying, you know, hey, the, the thing at the top of the food pyramid, isn't that like where the sugars go? Any nutritionists in there? Food, remember the food pyramid? No? Yeah. Remember the sugars? But if you take that top of the pyramid off, it still looks like a pyramid all by itself. I'm looking at the sugars and the candies in its own pyramid, and I'm thinking, like, that's my pyramid. I like that pyramid. It's a full pyramid all by itself, and I'm going to live on that pyramid. Well, that's exactly what happens to believers. We gravitate towards a teaching that strokes our flesh, that, that inflates our ego, and, and that capitalizes on the religious thing that's behind it, And then we settle down into it and make it everything. And it's a huge issue among the church, especially the church in America. We take one piece of the pie out and we're like, we like this. We don't like that. That's not God. Let's do this. How about an example? That's not the food pyramid. Okay. Oh, I got, I got, I got, I got. Watch this. So that book that we talked to you guys about a couple years ago, The Culture of Honor. Danny Silk out of Bethel wrote this book. Awesome, awesome book. And one of the things he talks about is how the Church of America has elected for itself pastoral leadership as opposed to what the New Testament church um, really prescribes, which is apostolic leadership. Why would we do that? Because pastors make us feel good. Pastors make us feel safe. Pastors are not offensive. Pastors are counselors and encouragers, and they protect, and they comfort. They're comforters, and we want to be comfortable. And so we choose pastoral leadership in our churches because that guy will show up to the hospital when I'm sick. That guy will come and pray uh, over my prodigal and, you know, and regardless of everything else going on in my house, we'll only talk about the problem I want to talk about. That's an example. The pastoral gifting is an absolute vital part of the church, and it's one of the ways by which the body is equipped and, and matures into the fullness of the stature of Christ as prescribed in Ephesians 4.11. However... It's not the only way, and it was never meant to lead. Just like your emotions, they're beautiful. God gave them to you to feel they were never meant to lead you. If you're making emotional decisions, you're making bad ones, okay? Yeah, I see that hand in the back. 
Thank you. <laughs> I'm with you, bro. Because I'm a feeler, okay? And it's easy for me to be led around by my heart and my feelings. I'm like, oh, I don't want to, okay. At the end of the day, it comes back to order. And the fullness of the council tells us, no, we need the prophets in our lives. No, we need apostles leading our churches. Well, can't that just be in other places? That word's so offensive. It was so abused back in the 1960s and 70s. We probably shouldn't use that word anymore. Yeah, people are doing that with every Christian word because everything in the scriptures was abused. Jesus was abused, but maybe we should hang on to him. What do you think? So in all of these cases, bad teaching ends up reducing us down to a, a, a limited at best, a limited understanding of who God is. So we're only looking at one wall, and it lets the enemy over the other one. You follow me? Well, you know, I just believe in blessing, and I feel like we should be motivated. I was charged a while back to sit on a committee to um, rewrite uh, the statements of faith for an organization. And I was with a number of pastors and some leaders, and we were uh, working on this uh, doctrinal statements of faith for uh, this Christian organization. And as we were rewriting some, we noticed, okay, so there's some stuff in here that's a little, you know, not real clear on just a little thing like hell. You know, we should probably talk about hell, like that there's a reality to this. And Jesus is very clear about it, speaks on it, it's truth. Let's make sure that we're not mincing words about hell. And as we're writing this, another leader in the room was like, well, that just doesn't feel encouraging to me. Don't you think that our doctrinal statements of faith should be like, they should be encouraging and they should be motivating. Like, shouldn't they be? And I said, no, no, I don't. I don't think that. And with all due respect, because I'm always super respectful, I said, I said, this is not like our marketing campaign. This is what we believe. And if we're willing to compromise here so that people aren't made uncomfortable, then we're losing right now. We're losing right now. And saints, if we're not willing to accept the fullness of the word of God, and does that mean that you won't struggle with some things? No, you're going to struggle with some stuff. Okay. (laughs) That's like a good sign. I'm glad people struggle. I'm glad people are like, you know what? I don't have a problem with any of this. Now, then you haven't read it because there's some stuff here that's going to make your flesh upset. Okay. There's some stuff here that's going to offend the lifestyle of someone you love very closely and therefore offend you. Okay. I'm just going to tell you how it is. But at the end of the day, if we're just going to rip that page out and, and throw it away, we're falling under bad teaching. You know, what's interesting about the words thief and robber, uh, they're two different Greek words, and the, the word for thief is kleptes, which is where we get our klepto from, right, kleptomania. But kleptes is actually adopted into descriptive writings about false teachers. Well, that's not really thieving, is it? Well, it is when you think of the fact that bad teaching ends up occupying space, valuable, important space in our lives, that should be held by the full council. Well, how do I get under good teaching? Well, the Holy Spirit should be leading you. This is why we need discernment. One of the many reasons why we need discernment. 
I remember, I've said this a million times up here, but I remember Dean Gallagher at Zion Bible College, and he would say to us, saints, the, the best thing you can get while you're at Zion is discernment. The number one thing you should ask for from the Lord while you're here, discernment, discernment, discernment. So I took it to heart, and I prayed for discernment, and John, John entered into my life. God gave me John. Thank you, John. What'd you say? You needed wisdom and I needed discernment and the sons of thunder became one. At the end of the day, I, I just want to encourage you um, to know that you need to be in a place and you can be in a place and there still is good. Te- is bad teaching abound? Yeah, it does. But it's one thing that I love about Pastor Kurt. It's one thing I love about how he's leading the school of the spirit is, okay, there are going to be classes that make some of us uncomfortable, and it's possible. I mean, at orientation, we're like wide open. There's going to be some, some instructors who say some things that are going to ruffle your feathers. That doesn't mean you just pack up and check out and leave. That means that you deal with it. Imagine that. We don't deal with stuff anymore. We medicate or we leave. But the Lord is calling us to mature, and maturity requires dealing with stuff. And when we come to the other end of it, we're better, we're stronger, we look more like Jesus because we stuck it out. Uh, One more thing on that, because another piece that is more recent, and I need to address it. Uh, There's been a move in the last, like, year or two um, and there's a group of guys and movies that are coming out, YouTubes and all this stuff. And um, I affectionately refer to them as demon hunters. Um, but it's, it's this move where all this emphasis is put on casting out demons. Now, this is real, okay? It's real. Jesus does it in scripture, and it happens today in our church. We practice this. We believe that we have the power in Jesus' name to bind up these unclean things and to evict them from our lives, absolutely we walk in this. But that's not all there is. Okay, and so I think one of the, the pitfalls, one of the, the, the potholes that we can fall in is this idea that like, okay, well, if I'm a real Christian, I'll be casting out demons from people every day. And I won't need any, I don't need to ever minister peace or joy or hope or anything like that. I'm just like on this demon hunting rampage. And, and it's like, Jesus does say, hey, when you go, signs and wonders are going to follow you. You will, yes, cast out demons in my name. But that's not all he said. And so that shouldn't be all we're doing. And that shouldn't be the only teaching that we're receiving. Because what ends up happening is, and I'll show it to you, it's a real quick path from A to B. A is we get turned on to this. And it starts to stroke that thing in us that loves intensity. You know, it starts to stroke that thing. We never see Jesus like doing like this. Come He's never doing that. What's that? Tell me your name. Yeah, he's never doing that. No, he's never doing that. No, he's not. It's just a part of how he walked. It's just a part of how he lived. It's a part of his day. And so what ends up happening for us is if you're an addictive personality or you're like an, a really intense person like me, then you want everything turned up to 11 all the time. And so we gravitate towards teachings, towards churches, towards ministries that like are always like, ah! like all the time. And we love it because 
it actually feeds an addictive thing in us that probably should be healed. And so we, uh, so we end up doing that. And then when other people in the church aren't as into it as we are, thank God there's some people in the church that aren't, then we're kind of like, we start to be like, instead of being like, hey, thank God that there's other people and like the kingdom is real well represented, we start to be like, oh, y'all aren't casting out demons every day? Oh my, you're not real Christians. Oh no, no, you need to be like, you just need to be assuming that there's three demons in every person all the time. And the pastor's probably got 10. You know what I'm saying? And so when we start to take on this mindset, then we start to defend it. Now our whole life depends on defending our stance. And in order to do it, now we start casting demons out of people who don't have demons. A to B, now we're screwing people up. Now we're just good old-fashioned screwing people up. Saints, we've got to have the full counsel. We've got to be under good teaching that's distributing all of it, truth across the board. Amen? And finally, and I'll say this one really quick, offense and unforgiveness. How does the enemy get in? Offense and unforgiveness. Probably the number one way. Best for last. Hardest for last. What does it look like? How does forgiveness weaken me? Well, it starts when somebody uh, it starts when somebody fires a missile at your wall, and it comes crashing through and leaves this big gaping hole. And you know, it looks like you know, you know, World War II. Like your city's like starts to ravished, and it's just half a wall there and bricks, jagged edges sticking out. And so, what you do is what anybody would do. Once the smoke has cleared, you walk over to that hole. And you stand at that hole and you weep and you mourn the loss and, you, and you're devastated and you cry and you hurt and then you go through all the stages, you get mad, then you stay mad and then you learn how to you know, be someone who can still effectively live but mad all the time. But you never leave that hole. You never rebuild that hole for different reasons. Maybe, maybe you never rebuild it because you say, as long as this hole is here, they can never hit this same spot again. Or maybe you say, for as long as this hole's here, I can see the next one coming. Or for as long as this hole's here, we'll just leave it here as a memorial of how terrible and awful that person was that fired it. But what ends up happening is while you're obsessing over that hole for the next 20 years, the enemy is coming over every other wall behind you. That's why people with unforgiveness end up with so many physical issues in their bodies. I mean, we've watched people in this church at this altar choose to forgive and cancer disappears from their body. We've watched people like masses shrink because folks choose to forgive. They repent from bitterness. And what would have taken their life is instead eradicated from their life. How'd the enemy get in? Well, he's not coming through this hole because I'm gonna stand right here with all my arms ready, cocked and, and aimed. Okay, but that's just that one place. Why don't we rebuild that? I see the Lord walking around with Nehemiah looking at that wall. Hey, let's start right here. Let's start with unforgiveness. 
Let's start right now. Let's start with, with, with the, 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 the root of it all. We're so focused on protecting a wound left open by that offense that the enemy's obliterating something else. Well, how can I even think about what's going on in my marriage when this happened to me? How can I even think about what's going on with my kids when, when this happened to me? And I, I've, I've, got a, I've got a post about this. It's been 24 hours since I did. Hear the Lord this morning. Hear him ask you, how'd they get in? Where's the weak spot? Where's the hole? And you may say, Zach, it's not one spot. It's not one hole. I can't even answer that question. I'm a pile of rubble. Well, good news for you that there's still a door. And there's only one who comes through that door. The shepherd, the good shepherd comes through that door. Would you stand with me, saints? This is the best part. What's the door? Well, in this part of the story, and Jesus flips the metaphor on us in a few verses, but for right now, right here, the one who comes through the door, that door is your heart. See, we try to, we try to deny it. We try to occupy it. We try to cram all sorts of other stuff through it. But the only one who can come through the door is the shepherd. You were designed with a heart that only opens to Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about your heart like your emotions, because we know our emotions can be accessed by all sorts of stuff. But I'm talking about your heart like your spirit, man. There's a key that only he has. And there's a door that only he can go through. And if it didn't come in in his hands through that door, then it's not from him and it's not for you. But if it did, see, when we invite him in to our heart of hearts, when we let him in, when we give him access, now he'll start taking that walk with you. Hey, see this spot over here? Let's address this spot. Hey, I'll take care of that. I know that whole wall's gone. Don't worry about that. I've got people on that side. I've got people in this church that are covering your six. Let's deal with this spot right here, right now. But that's the one I don't want to deal with. I want to go do this over here. It's more fun. I know. Let's deal with this one, though. That's a good shepherd. That's Jesus. And that's his grace in our lives. This all starts by inviting him back in. Well, I invited him 20 years ago, Zach. Okay. But have you made him unwelcome since then? Have you evicted him since then? Have you slammed the door on his face? Because here's what typically happens. When the outer wall gets compromised, we shrink back into a smaller space. And then when that gets compromised, we shrink back into a smaller space. And pretty soon we're like Sandra Bullock in a safe room somewhere. And we're just, we, we, there's a whole world that the Lord's called us to walk in authority and influence over. And we are living in a box, in a cell, safe. 
Would you see his hand this morning inviting you out? If you'll just invite him in. Let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you are a good shepherd. That you will wait for us to let you in. And that you will walk with us to and through the weak places in our lives. To and through the brokenness in our walls. To and through the trauma and abuse in our pasts. We invite you now. Come into our hearts. Change our lives. Fortify all that we have. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.